I'd invite you now to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We came to this text a few weeks ago, and we are going to revisit it. And in a few moments, I'm actually going to read all uh, Genesis 18, beginning with verse 16, all the way to the end of 19, which is quite a hefty portion. We want to look at the entire passage as a, a panoramic picture of what God has for us. But before we do that, would you join me in a word of prayer, Father in heaven, that we ourselves may trust you, that we ourselves may hear you and hear your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1896, just a few decades after the end of the Civil War, between 1896 and, and, and the end of the Civil War, there had been a, a recovery of primarily black Americans who were able, now freed from slavery, freed from that incredible, incredibly unjust oppression, freed from slavery, and they began to flourish in the world for those decades. But trouble began to come on the scene almost immediately, and pushback began to be experienced against the, the new liberties that were being experienced by this now freed, now uh, liberated people group. And in 1896, a landmark Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, set down a, 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 a pullback, so to speak, of the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment that it did not necessarily apply in full to uh, black Americans. That it was therefore just for them to be equal, sure, but to be kept separate from white Americans. In Atlanta, in a packed theater opera house, as the show was being, as the show was was going on, someone came out onto the platform there and announced, silent, stopped the show and announced this decision, and the entire floor of that theater erupted in standing applause. But the balcony where black Americans were sitting remained silent. Knowing that what this meant was that they would, that the injustices that they had experienced and just been freed from were now going to be reversed. And indeed they were. And this decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, was unanimous, almost unanimous, rather. One judge, one judge only, Justice John Marshall Harlan, dissented from it. And this is, this is remarkable, because in this time, almost uh, most of the uh, decisions handed down by the Supreme Court in this time period were unanimous. They pushed for unanimous. There was Im- immense pressure on all of the justices to come to unanimous agreement on every decision. But in this, John, Justice John Marshall Harlan broke ranks. And though he had been raised in Kentucky, and though he had been raised in a home where that had slaves, and though he had a, a brother who was the product, a, a half-brother, who was the product of a relationship between his dad and a slave woman, he saw the evils of slavery. He saw the injustices that, were being, that had occurred under, uh, under that system of oppression, and he not just voted against it, but he would write what would become landmark words for our country. And it was actually his argument in his dissent that would eventually win the day in Brown versus, education, Brown versus the Board of Education many decades later, almost 60 years later. And it was his arguments that would lean or, or begin the the alteration of the fabric of our country in which the violation of civil rights of people just because of where they come from or their previous slavery or the color of their skin would be unjust. 
there is a desire in our country, there is a desire around the world for justice. In fact, you can't turn on the news these days without hearing somebody calling for justice. In fact, the ideas and and, and what has become justice issues has become so varied and wild and complex that almost everything seems to be a justice issue these days. But matters of justice are not just social and political. They are personal. Many of you, some of you who have experienced Abuse, pain, suffering at the hands of another person or at the hands of a corporation. And perhaps you turned to the courts and you found the justice system lacking. Because what justice, our justice system can do is never give true justice. It can only give what we might call proximate justice. That is, we can only get as close as is humanly possible in this fallen world to something like justice. I mean, how do you measure the worth of a life in sentencing someone to years? What is someone's pain and hardship in terms of money? How do you calculate that? It's easy for us, perhaps, to sit back and look and say, okay, that crime warrants this many years. But when you are the victim, you can't help but often feel the injustice that, is, that our current justice system, that man-made justice, is able to accomplish. No matter how great our human justice may be, it yet falls short of perfect justice. This is why, and this this is something that has been going on not just here in our country, this has been going on since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. This is why you see so much longing for justice in the scriptures, again and again and again, you will find throughout the Old Testament, again in the New, this cry, how long, O Lord? Psalm 6.3, my soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Or Psalm 13.1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or Psalm 94, 3 to 7, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. And again, even in heaven, we are told in Revelation chapter 6, that those believers who have been killed for following after Christ, they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? The longing for things to be made right is is central to us. We feel that deeply. And the more personal the pain, the more urgent the desire, the more earnest the desire for justice. And as we approach our text this morning, this entire passage is answering the question, will the judge of all the earth, will the Lord, the judge of all the earth, do what is right? And it is answering it with a resounding yes. So before we begin, would you join with me as we read this word? I'd encourage you to follow along. It is lengthy, but do not let that discourage you. In fact, what, what we're trying to do here, rather than just reading a few verses, we are trying to get the full picture so that we see all that is happening and we will just revisit pockets of it. We will pull the various threads out as we walk through later on. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 18, then the men, these are the angels, 
rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Adam and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, and Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the, for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy it all for the lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there are, there be 40 there, 40 found there. So he, that is the Lord, said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. And he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if there, if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I find, I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 shall be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak, but once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open space. But he insisted strongly so that they turned to him and so they turned into him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally, according to the flesh. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them, behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you do not, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the men, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. 
And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to him, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight and, have, and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. It is, is it not a little one and my soul shall live? And he said to him, see, I have favored you concerning this thing also. And that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire. That's a kind of sulfur, sulfuric substance on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains and his two daughters were with him for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of the earth. Clearly they think that God has destroyed almost everyone now. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. And they made their father, and they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. This entire episode captures for us just how far gone things had gotten in Sodom and Gomorrah. It is a lengthy passage, admittedly. But here we see in full panoramic view the the vileness, the disgusting nature of what is there. We see the justice and the judgment of God on this city. And this, this entire episode puts the justice of God under the microscope. It asks, it forces us to ask the question whether God is just in what he did. We see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 24 and 25 of Genesis 19. Raining brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. His destruction on the city is, it is horrific. It is surprising. It is total. This is far beyond any kind of natural event. 
In fact, a, a natural event such as a, an earthquake or some kind of volcanic eruption, it wouldn't fully explain all of the sequence of events here. Clearly, something is happening guided by God. In fact, it, this passage makes it so clear, absolutely clear, that this isn't just a sequence of natural and normal events that have happened. This isn't just some accident that has befallen these cities. This is the hand of God at work in judgment. Three times, verses 24 and 25 alone make it clear, this is the work of God. All men, all women, all children, destroyed. All the animals, all the crops, everything completely laid down. Everything what, which once had been so beautiful and so attractive that Lot had decided to leave the safety of being with Abraham to go to this beautiful plain has now been reduced to ashes and fire. And it begs the question... How can God be just in this? It, it overturns our, our modern sensibilities that God is merely love. You know, that Instagram theology where God is inspirational and he is kind and he is loving and he will just sweep our offenses under, our offenses under the cosmic carpet, so to speak. Live how you please. God is forgiving. And this just empties out that entire viewpoint, pulls the carpet out from under, and it exposes who our God is. He is just. He is a judge. It is not that he is unloving, but that his love, he is loving not to the exclusion of being just. And what is it that could possibly justify the total destruction of everyone and everything here? That is, that is the biggest challenge we face. Is God a monster in this? Is this just an example of Old Testament God being mean and curmudgeonly, but the New Testament God being loving doesn't work quite like that. In fact, some of the most difficult and harsh and challenging words and clear words about the justice and the judgment of God are in the New Testament. Take a look this week at Revelation chapters 19 and 20. But this text doesn't leave us in any doubt about why God does what he does. It's about because what we find here is that there is an incalculable evil called sin. Genesis 18, 20 to 21. And the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, the fame of this sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I will know. And it's not that God is going down because he, he doesn't know what he will find there. Rather, he sends the angels on a 60 minutes investigative report because he knows what he will find and he's simply uncovering what's already there. That picture, the outcry is so great that it has reached even heaven. The fame of which, the fame of their their evil, the wickedness of that city would have been widely known. In fact, when God says what he is about to do, you notice Abraham is simply pleading for the sake of righteousness. He's not actually saying, you know, that city's not so bad. We see this not only with city of Sodom and Gomorrah being so great, which speaks of the significance of their sin, and so grievous, which speaks of the seriousness of their sin. Literally, that word great there is speaking of its heaviness, its weight. We see the perversion of the Sodomites illustrated, don't we? That's why I had to read this chapter, because if you just read God's intention to judge, it seems rather harsh, 
But when you begin to look at how widespread and how thoroughgoingly evil this place is, we begin to understand why God does what he does in destroying the city. The angels go in. They intend to sleep in the, in the square. Lot pulls them into his house, convinces them to come in. And very soon, every man from every quarter, all, everyone in the city is coming. And their intent is to sexually assault these two individuals whom Lot has taken into his home. The brazenness of this, the the perversion of it, it is hard for us to fathom. This is their evil, their sinfulness is described further in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. Where we read this, look, this was the iniquity of your, systems, of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. In addition to their perversion that you find here listed, they were, they were proud in it. They had plenty. This was a city of abundance. And yet, they also cared nothing to help the poor. They cared nothing about those around them. It was a city that was unjust in every way. And we see the way that it has affected, infected, Lot and his family. In verse 7 of chapter 19 Lot, who has lived in the city for some time, he now calls these men who are before him, he calls them my brothers. You know, at this moment, this is, that, that is not the language most of us would be using to refer to people who are banging on our door insisting that they be permitted to sexually assault our guests. My brothers? Here he is identifying with the men of the city. And then in the very next, next verse in Genesis 19.8, he offers up his daughters for this crowd to use and abuse as they would wish. And then in verse 14, he, he warns his sons-in-laws to leave the city with him and they themselves, so perverted along with the rest of the city, they cannot imagine the judgment of God. They think he's joking and they, they laugh him off. In verse 26, after having been warned again and again by the angels, Lot himself and his wife and his daughters, they've got to be dragged out of the city by these angels, the Lord being merciful to them. And then, just in case we hadn't seen enough, the very end of this passage, the very end of this episode, ends with Lot and his daughters in a cave committing even more unspeakable acts. Clearly, they had not just lived in the world, the world had now taken root and home in them. The whole sequence of events is so shocking that You know those grocery store aisle tabloids? They would blush to publish a story like this. They'd be embarrassed about it. In a recent book, Ray Ortland includes uh, a letter from John Wesley to William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was the one who in England had fought and strove and eventually won for the end of the slave trade. And in that letter, he describes the slave trade, Wesley, encouraging William William Force to give his life, his political career, to this almost impossible task. And he describes the slave trade as an, an execrable evil. I had to look that word up. I'd never read the execrable before. It simply means worthy of damnation. As we read through Genesis chapter 19, you cannot help but come away from this passage and think this is a city, this is a place, this is a people who are worthy of damnation. The name of this episode is that when we read Abraham's question in verse 25 of chapter 18, will the Lord, the judge of all the earth, do what is right? We are to read this entire passage and be able to say, Yes. Yes. 
the judge of all the earth, will do what is right. We see this as, he, as the Lord sends down angels, not because he is trying to figure out what will happen, but because he wants to uncover the sin that is there. He wants to showcase his justice and his righteousness in it. It is the reason that God allows himself to be questioned by Abraham. He goes from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10 because he wants Abraham to know that he is just, that he, the Lord, will always do what is right. This doesn't mean that God's people won't suffer in this world, but what's happening here is different. God has said that he is bringing this this destruction on these cities as an act of specific judgment for their sin. God may have a, and, and does have, a multitude of purposes in suffering and hardship that he allows and permits to happen in this world. But here, this act was specific condemnation. And so the question is there, how can you condemn the righteous along with those who are wicked? And the Lord wants Abraham to be absolutely clear that he will not. You and I are meant to see that God, as the judge of all the earth, will not, indeed he cannot do anything that is not right. God can't do anything that is not right ever for even a moment. It cannot even enter into his mind. Daniel 4, verse 37, for all his works are right and his ways are just. So what is this truth? That God, the judge of all the earth, will do what is right and just. What, what does this mean for you and I What impact does this have? Let me give you five ways in which this can be teased out for us through scripture and in this passage. The first is because the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Therefore, first, we must worship him. Therefore, we must worship him. You know, we, we praise it when a good judge, when someone we believe is a good judge arises and is promoted to the highest court of our land because we love justice. When a decision is made that people can all see this was a just decision. Does not everybody praise it? Does not everybody who, well, agrees with that decision anyway, that it is just. Does not everyone say, yes, this is good. This is justice. Isn't there some form of hope and gladness when justice is done? How much more ought we to praise and glorify our God when we can know without a doubt at every moment and in every place and at all time, God will do what is right and he cannot do anything but what is right. Some of you have been hurt and wronged and some, in some significant ways and you are dissatisfied with the justice you have received. Many of us, we see what is happening around the world and we are rightly concerned by it. But we have a God who will do justly, who is at this moment doing all things right and he will, in the end, set everything right. He will get perfect justice. This is why Psalm 67 invites us to praise him. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and and sing, for you judge the peoples with equity. On the last day, part of our eternal gladness in life, in life with God, will be joy that our God has set everything right. It does not matter how significant that person may be who has committed the wrong, how shielded they are by their positions of power. It does not mean, it does not matter how mighty the nation may be who has committed atrocities. It does not matter how insignificant your problem, your suffering, your pain may be in the eyes of the world. God will set it right. 
perfectly. And we will be glad in him. We will be stunned with joy because the judge of all the earth will do what is right. So brothers and sisters, worship him. Make much of him. Serve him. Secondly, because the judge of all the earth will do what is right, we must take sin seriously. Do you you not see what God has done to these cities? The destruction that he has leveled upon these peoples? And we can so often treat the daily temptations and daily sins as, as if they are not that big of a deal. As if the pride of our hearts and, the, and, and where our thoughts go to are something that can just be simply excused. But the entire witness of God's word testifies to the deadly seriousness of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 10-11 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Psalm 4, Psalm 5, verses 4-6 to You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Ezekiel 34, verse 7, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And Jesus says in Matthew 20, 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And Paul speaks in Romans chapter 2, that we are storing up, because of our hard and impenitent hearts, we are storing up wrath for ourselves in the day of wrath, when God's justice and righteous judgment will be revealed, and he will render to each man according to his works on that day when according to my gospel Paul says God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus and Hebrews 10:31 tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when I was growing up and I would do something and I would think I could get away with it and then my Mom or my dad, especially my dad, when he found out and I would get in trouble, he would remind me of these words from Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. We cannot run from it. You may go incognito on your computer or on your phone, but the Lord still sees You may be paying with cash for that thing. But God tracks it all. And he not just does what we see and what we do. He knows every thought, every feeling, every word, every internal decision. Which is why Peter implores us, begs us in 2 Peter chapter 3. Saying, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Brothers and sisters, take your sin seriously. There are no secret sins. There is nothing that God does not know. There is nothing for which we will not give an account to him on the last day. And friend, maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Do you, do you see now why Christians talk about sin so much? Because God talks about it so much. Because God takes it seriously. And do you realize that if what the Bible says is true, and it is, that you will one day stand before a holy and just God and give an account for everything you have done and said. Here's the good news that the very one you and I have sinned against, our God has given us his own son. He has sent his son into the world. And Christ Jesus came into the world and where you and I have failed, Jesus has succeeded. He has fully obeyed so that all who trust and lean on Christ are forgiven and washed clean.
the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Therefore, repent and trust in him. Third, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Therefore, friends, be content to leave it all in his hand. To leave it all in his hands. You know, there is, in our world right now, there is this constant stoking of anger and outrage. Turn on the news, and there is anger at what someone has said. And then there is outrage and anger over someone else's outrage and anger over someone else's outrage. It's a never-ending cycle. It will stoke the fires of your heart in the complete wrong direction. And if you and I will not be able to trust that God will set everything right. You and I will seethe with bitterness and anger. We will take matters into our own hands in ungodly, in ungodly ways. But do you notice what happens at the end of Genesis chapter 19 and verses 27 and 28? When, when Abraham wakes up one morning and he goes to the last place that he was with the Lord and those two angels and he gets there and he sees this place, where he sees the, from a distance where Sodom and Gomorrah are and the, the smoke rising up as if from a furnace. At this moment, Abraham has no idea that Lot has been rescued out, does he? Lot hasn't made his way there. Lot is in, perhaps in Zoar, perhaps in some cave somewhere. We're not sure the timing of it exactly. But clearly, Abraham is looking on. He does not know the outcome of, of Lot. All he knows is that he, he pleaded with the Lord to do what is right. God assured him that he would do what is right. And while we are not told that Abraham, how Abraham was thinking or feeling, Yet we are given no indication that Abraham is filled with doubt or anger at God for not preserving the city. Why? Because Abraham at this moment entrusts it all to God. He had made his prayer. He had pleaded for Lot and for the cities on the basis of 10 righteous people being present. Can we watch the news and be equally content and patient on the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we must be. When we know that the surgeon is good and skillful, we trust him with the scalpel. We can trust our God with our lives and with our world. More than this, this changes the way we interact with other believers, isn't it? I mean, so often conflict between Christians arises when one person does one thing, believes one thing. You know, we're talking about, let's reduce it down to modern day, to some difficulties that we today are struggling with. Let's talk about masks and vaccines and, and how we deal with that. And some are going to wear the masks and some will get the vaccines and, and others on the, on the opposite side, for whatever reason, we may choose to, to do neither. To, we are going to stand our ground. We, we view this differently. And it becomes a, an important issue, isn't it? And yet, if this is true, we will learn what Paul says in Romans 14 to be true. That if God is the judge who will do what is right, we can learn to leave our brother and sister in Christ who doesn't know what we know, we can leave them in the hands of the Lord and trust them to him. Paul writes this in Romans 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or who, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You and I, we, we're not giving an account for what someone else, how they disagree with us. They may not be as educated. They may not know what you know. But we can leave one another in the hands of the Lord and we are thus freed to love one another. Certainly we, we may disagree. Certainly we may discuss those disagreements. But at the end of the day and all throughout those disagreements, we must learn to love one another Truly. Fifth, fourth rather, 
The judge of all the earth will do what is right. Therefore, remain hopeful. It may feel at times like the world is growing dark and there is nowhere to turn. But Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. That just as the Lord was able to rescue Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, so we can be sure that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to protect those who are his. When the plagues were hitting Egypt, God made a distinction between his people and those who were not his people. The Lord will carry us through. He will take care of us. Just as he preserved Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, therefore we can know that the Lord who will always do what is right, we can be sure of our hope and confidence in him. And lastly, because the judge of all the earth will do what is right, that even when we feel overwhelming shame and the weight of our sin, we may still come to him. At the end of this chapter, we are left with a horrendous scene, two daughters conspiring to get their father drunk so that they can go in and get pregnant by him. And we learn that from this union, that each daughter produces a son, the one she names Moab, who becomes the father of the Moabites, the other Ammon, who becomes the father of the Ammonites. And both of these people groups, they become hostile to the people of Israel throughout time. And this, you and I, we we live independently. We want to be our own person, to be and act as if we are the first in our family who have set set foot on the stage of the world so that whatever has happened in the past doesn't affect us now. But in that time, your family's history your family tree, it mattered significantly. And this event that their father was the product of, of a mother and a, I'm sorry, of a daughter and her father would have followed them through time. You can imagine how it would have just repulsed the people of Israel, the people of Moab, the people of Ammon. Oh my word. Do you know where they came from? This is incredible. This is disgusting. And that shame would have followed them down generation after generation after generation. That scarlet letter, so to speak, would have been writ large on them. And yet, I cannot help but see that there is a a woman, a descendant of Moab, a Moabite herself, who marries into a Jewish family who had rebelled against the Lord and when the Lord had taken all of the sons in an act of she joins with her mother-in-law and goes back to Israel. And that shame, that, that scarlet letter on her past which follows her Yet she, because she hopes in the Lord, because she clings to the promises of God and joins herself by faith to God and his people, she becomes, uh, she is included in the line of Christ Jesus. She herself is washed clean. She is given a new family, a new family history a new acceptance. That is what the God who is the judge of all the earth, who does what is right, that is what we can be sure of when we hope in Christ Jesus. That we, like Ruth, are brought into the family of God. And our history and our baggage Whatever may have 
whatever we may have done and whatever may have been done to us, it is washed clean. There are no people who are used goods in the kingdom of God. There is no red in our ledger. It has all been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. As I was meditating on this text, I couldn't help but think there of the end. This hymn that we often sing, Come ye sinners, in light of all this, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. See him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Let's pray. Our God and Savior, you are the judge who will do what is right. Let us live in light of your justice, of your righteousness, of your mercy this week. Because you are the judge of what is right, who will do what is right, you cannot punish and destroy those who hope in you. Because your son has taken our sin on himself. And he has already paid for it entirely. Oh God, thank you for the provision of your son, Christ. Grant us confidence in him this week. We pray in his name. Amen.